Today's reading is from Judges chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God, and you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. This is the reading of God's word. So through the book of Judges that we've been looking at um, is this cycle. And the cycle is Israel sins. Normally they're worshiping some sort of false god, uh, the Baals or Asherah poles or something like that. And so because they are sinning, then God oppresses them. And so if you start up here, Israel sins, then God oppresses them. And he's not like getting back at them or anything. He's like, why are you guys worshiping these false idols? This isn't good for you. And so in order to correct them because he loves them, he oppresses them. And then when he oppresses them, then Israel cries out, God, save us. We don't like this oppression, right? And so then God delivers them. He delivers them by sending a judge to them. And then, so that's kind of the circle in between those last two things. While the judge is alive, Israel is worshiping God and everything's great. As soon as the judge dies, what happens? The cycle starts all over again. The judge dies and the Israelites go right back to worshiping all these false idols. So as I was thinking, like if you were God, at what point would you say enough is enough, (laughs) right? I mean, enough is enough. I'm done. Like, don't you guys get it? Don't you get it? This isn't good for you. I'm done giving you a second chance. But how gracious is God to keep taking them through this process over and over and over again. And God does the same thing today. He relentlessly offers us his grace to people who don't deserve it, people who don't seek it, people who don't even appreciate it. That's what grace is, undeserved kindness. So, But in the first part of chapter 6, instead of sending a judge right away, God changes things up a little bit, and he sends a prophet, like my wife just read. He sends a prophet, and he does this because before they can appreciate the rescue that's going to come, they will get rescued again. We'll read that in chapter 7. They need to understand even why they need rescuing in the first place. Like, they have no idea what their sin of idolatry is actually doing to them. And so there's two themes that we're going to see in the book of Judges. There's a little handout in your bulletin. If you like taking notes, here's your first couple themes. The two themes that we'll see weave throughout these chapters, and I think through the whole book, is fear versus faith. 
Fear hides, but faith follows. That's what it does. Fear hides, but faith follows. And the second theme is God uses human weakness for his glory. We're going to see both of those themes weaved in and out throughout this passage. So look at verse 6 of chapter 6 with me. It says this, The people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. At first glance, it sounds like they're repentant. But are they really repentant? I don't think they are. I think they're just regretful. And there's a big difference between repentance and regret. I think they just regret getting caught, right? Had they not been caught, would they actually have turned from what they're doing? I don't think so. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So repentance and regret are totally opposite each other. You can't have repentance and regret. It's, it says repentance leads to salvation and leaves no regret. So regret and repentance are very different. I want to define these real quick because I think this is an important point. Regret is being sorry for the consequences of a sin, but not being broken over the sin itself. If there were no consequences, there would be no sorrow. Like, regret has nothing to do with being broken of how your sin grieves God. You're just sorry you got caught, right? We see this in our kids all the time. It's all on the horizontal. It has nothing to do with your vertical relationship with God. And because it stays on that horizontal level, it can actually never move past that. I'll explain that in a second. You will just stay in your sorrow. Regret doesn't produce any real change. You just stay in that regretful place. But repentance, on the other hand, repentance is you are broken over your sin because it's causing a division in your relationship with God, so you turn from the sin. It's all about the vertical instead of the horizontal. It's not about avoiding consequences at all. It's the exact opposite. It's realizing that you actually deserve the consequences and yet realizing that God took the punishment upon himself that you deserved, so now you're free and able to obey him. That's how repentance can move past regret because God deals with the consequences and then they're done. Now you're forgiven. We don't have to keep living with the guilt and shame and sorrow anymore. Does that make sense? It's a complete 180. If I'm going this way, living this, living this way, doing these bad things, and I regret, I'm, yeah, I'm not really turning from it, but repentance is turning from it, realizing how my sin grieves God, my relationship with God first and foremost. So now I go this way in repentance. Tim Keller says this, Regret is all about us. How am I being hurt? How my life is ruined? How my heart is breaking? But repentance is all about God. How he has been grieved. How his nature as creator and redeemer is being trampled on. How his repeated saving actions are being trivialized and used manipulatively. Did Israel ever truly repent for any of their false idol worship? No. How do we know? Because they kept going back to it. The book of Judges, like God kept sending more and more judges. If they would have repented, the book of Judges would be one chapter long, 
right? They would have repented, turned from it, and it's done. But it's not. There's 12 judges, so we know they, keep, they kept going back to it, right? But don't be so quick to point your finger at the Israelites and accuse them. You idiots, how could you guys do that over and over again? Don't you see it? No, no, no. Takeaway point number one here. Are you and I just like the Israelites and only regret that we got caught Or are we repentant and broken over the sin that we've committed against God and willing to turn from it? I know my takeaway points are kind of long today, but I couldn't couldn't squeeze them down anymore. They are what they are. When was the last time you got in trouble for something? And I'm not just talking to kids. I know most of the students and kids are in Sunday school, but adults as well. When was the last time you got caught and in trouble for something? It might have been from your spouse caught you in something. How did you respond? Did you respond out of regret or repentance? Because there's a big difference. Now, how do you think the person you hurt would have responded to you differently if you truly repented, right? Oh, honey, I'm sorry. I I shouldn't have done that, right? As opposed to, will you please forgive me? I messed up. I sinned against God and against you. Here's what I did. Will you please forgive me? I won't do it again. And then you go this way, living this way, opposite of that. There's a big difference, right? How about when somebody hurts you and they only turn around and acknowledge what they did because you're crying or you had to tell them that it hurts you or you're laying on the ground hurt? Are they really broken and repentant? Or you had to tell them how much it hurt you so they're just sorry that they got caught. See, God wants to deal with the root of the problem. That's why he sent a prophet to the Israelites first before a judge. He wanted to get to the root of the problem. He wanted to deal with their hearts. So the Midianites, for seven years, the enemies, they come into the Israelite land, and they take all their crops, they take all their animals, and instead of the Israelites repenting and saying, yeah, God, we've been worshiping all these false idols, forgive us, we're not going to do it again, we're going to worship you instead, what do they do? They run and hide in the mountains in fear. That's what they did. They lived and operated in fear instead of faith. That's the first part of seeing that weave through here. Let's start reading at verse 11 in chapter 6. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belongs to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Midian." Gideon's like, why has all this happened to us, right? Where are you, God? God, Gideon's complaining while he's hiding inside of a wine press. Why is he hiding? He's not making wine. He's threshing wheat inside of a wine press because he's scared of the enemy out there, right? He's living in fear instead of faith. He says this wouldn't have happened if God was really with them. Is that true? Is that true? 
God was with them. He had not abandoned them. That's why they were in the predicament, because God wanted them to see them worshiping God instead of all the false idols, right? Because God knew that was a horrible way for them to live. So he didn't leave them to their own devices. He stayed with them. He wanted to heal them. He wanted to rescue them from this false idol worship. God didn't abandon them. They abandoned God. Keep reading. Verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord. How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. What does the angel of the Lord tell Gideon to do? He tells him to go and save Israel from Midian, right? Now, does Gideon believe he can do it? No. Can Gideon do it in his own strength? No, <laughs> right? He thinks, he thinks he's too weak. I'm the weakest. My clan is the weakest, right? Were those things true? Yeah, he was the weakest. His clan was the weakest. Was God concerned with those things? No, right? Because it wasn't about Gideon at all. God says, or the angel says, I will be with you. I am going to do all this, right? He knows Gideon can't do it in his own strength because he can't. So God tells him in verse 16, I will be with you. It's not about Gideon at all. It's all about God. God was working the whole situation so he would get the most glory from it. And that's our second takeaway today. God is always all about bringing himself the most glory from every situation. Why? Because he alone deserves it. If God gives credit and glory to somebody else, then that person or that, yeah, that person <clears throat> would be more capable than God. Then God would not be God. So he tells Gideon, go do this, this impossible task. It's impossible for you, Gideon, but nothing's impossible for me. Now, when I was reading this passage for the past few weeks, there's one question that kept standing out to me, and maybe it stood out to you. I could kind of glance past it, but I'm going to talk about it just for a second. And the question is, who is the angel of the Lord? <clears throat> As you read this, I kind of just need to address it. Is it just an angel? Is it God? Is it, I don't know, who is it, right? So I'm going to read a few more verses and pay attention to what Gideon calls him, how he responds to him. Verse 17 and he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said to him, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went out into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up for the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, 
Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizarites. So, who is the angel of the Lord? Well, verse 12 and 20 is referred to as the angel, right? But then verse 14, 16, and 18, it responds and says, The Lord said. So, is it an angel or is it God? Good question, right? Verse 22, it says, the angel of the Lord. And then it says, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord, all caps, face to face. So is this an angel or is it God? A lot of commentators say this was a Christophany. Everybody say Christophany. You know what Christophany is? Christophany is an appearance of Jesus Christ before he came in the New Testament as a baby. Was this a Christophany? Was it an angel? I don't know. Sorry to disappoint you. I don't have a clear answer on that, right? (laughs) Either way, in seeing the angel, he saw God himself. That's what he says. I saw God face to face. So God told him that he won't die by obeying his command. Faith instead of fear. So Gideon has this amazing encounter with God or this angel that changes his life, and he believes God will do what he said he's going to do. And so what does he do? He builds an altar for the real God right there who's preparing him for something big, a battle, Gideon's first battle. But before they can take on the enemies around them, they have to get rid of the enemies from among them. So God tells Gideon in the next verses that follow, hey, Gideon, I want you to go tear down this, this pole to the Baal. So the Baals were like their false gods that they worshipped, and then sometimes you'll see the word Asherah. Asherah poles are kind of like, almost like totem poles kind of things where they would worship these false gods. They're kind of like altars, Okay. And so God tells Gideon, hey, go, take, go tear down this pole to Baal. The problem is this pole that he tells him to go tear down belongs to Gideon's dad, Joash. So he says, Gideon, go tear down your dad's false idol. Okay. So what does Gideon do? He obeys. Well, kind of obeys, mostly obeys because he goes at night because he's afraid of the enemies coming or whatever, or the, all his people getting mad at him. So he goes at night, takes 10 guys with him, goes, tears down the pole, and then the next day, all the townspeople get together and are like, who tore down our, our idol to the Baals? And they all come to this conclusion, Gideon did. We're going to kill Gideon. But then Gideon's dad stands up for him, Joash. He's like, hey, hey, hey hold on, guys. Don't kill my son Gideon. That's a good dad, right? Don't kill my boy. If Baal is real, he should be able to rebuild his own pole, right? If he's a real God, he should be powerful enough to rebuild his own statue to himself. The townspeople think, they're like, yeah, that makes sense. We won't kill him, (laughs) right? So Gideon is spared right there. So Gideon should be good to go into battle, right? Seeing how all this stuff is playing out. Well, let's see. Verse 36, then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. 
And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Now, another question I had while I was, re- while I was reading this. Is Gideon really testing God? And is he really testing him the way that we think of testing God? When I think of testing God, I think of the New Testament when the devil is tempting Jesus out in the wilderness, and he comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, throw yourself off, off this ledge and let the angels come rescue you. And how does Jesus respond? In Matthew 4, 5, he says, do not test the Lord your God, right? Is Gideon testing God like that? I don't think so. I'm not convinced of that. See, some people have used this story of the fleeces out of context. They ask God to show them little signs so that they know if it's God or not. God, do you want me to marry this person? Do you want me to get this job? Do you want me to buy this car or buy this house or whatever? If so, give me a sign. I don't think that's the context of this. See, we, ask, we want direction from God. But remember something. Gideon didn't have the Bible like we have the Bible. He didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have communion and baptism. He didn't have other Christians around him to sharpen him and encourage him. What did he have? He had stories from his parents passed down from his ancestors and generations and generations. He could go listen to the Torah be read, the first five books of the Old Testament read by priests and stuff. He had this amazing encounter with God. I don't want to discount that. but he's still comparing God, the real God, to all these fake gods that he's grown up with his whole life. His dad's been worshiping all these fake, fake idols as well. These fake idols that were not real, that had no power. So what if Gideon wasn't testing God to get what he wanted, but he was seeing who God really was? He wanted to see if he was different from all the false idols he'd grown up with. If he was sovereign over the forces of nature. He wanted to understand the nature of God himself. Because his faith was weak, but I think his faith was also just kind of uninformed. So takeaway number three. We don't need little signs from God so we can discover God's will. We need to do what he's already revealed for us to do in his word. What's God's will for us? Do you know what God's will is for you? God, should I do this? Should I do this? What has God told us in his word? What's his will? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Love your enemies. Love your neighbors. Forgive those who wrong us. Be generous. Pursue purity. Live above reproach. And there's so many more, right? We don't need to ask God, should I do this? If it falls under any of those categories, that's what we should do right? That's God's will for us. We don't need to ask God for direction. We need to do what he's already told us to do and then walk in faith instead of fear. What was God communicating to Gideon about who he is? He's real. (laughs) 
He's not like all the Baals, these false gods, right? He's real. He's in control. He's powerful enough to back up his commands and his words. He's personal. He hears him. He responds to him. He's not like Baal at all. And when we make the same request of God, God, what are you like? How does God respond now? God, what are you like? Should I do this? Should I do this? How do I know if I can trust you? What does God say? Look to Jesus. <laughs> I already showed you what I'm like, right? If you saw Jesus, you've seen God. I've already given you instruction in my word. I've written it out. Now do it. Hear me. God has no more need to prove himself to us other than what he's already done through his word. God has no more need to prove himself to us other than what he's already done through his word. So Gideon now knows who God is, what he's like, what he's capable of. And so now it's putting that faith into action. But what is the tendency of every human heart always? It is to start to take credit for things, right? Oh, look at what I did, right? Well, God's going to put an end to that <laughs> real quick. Look at verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who, uh, who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. <laughs> 32,000 soldiers started off, and really, they weren't even soldiers. These are just farmers and shepherds. That's who they are, right? They're not even soldiers at all. They don't even have any real weapons for warfare. Remember, they've been taken over by the Midianites for seven years. Everything's been stripped from them. That's why they're, like Pastor Jason talked about last week, killing people with tent pegs and ox goads. And we'll see with Samson at the end, killing people with donkey jawbones. They don't even have weapons or anything, right? These aren't soldiers. They're not trained for warfare. So what does the vast majority of them do? 22,000 of them? I'm out of here, right? They go back home. They get scared, they head back. Fear instead of faith. Now, does God punish them for being afraid? He doesn't, right? God already knew this was going to happen with his people so many times. Check this out. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, I saw this this week. When you go to war, uh, chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, when you go to war against your enemies... You may see horses and chariots and armies larger than yours. Don't be afraid of them, because the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt will be with you. Before the battle starts, a priest must come and speak to the troops. And then jump down to verse 8, it says, And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the hearts of his fellows melt like his own. Ultimately, this wasn't a bad thing for the fearful people to go back home, right? God does it to protect the morale of those who stayed. Imagine fighting next to somebody who's like, dude, we're going to die. We're going to die. Why are we here? I don't even know how to fight, right? Do you want to be next to that guy in battle? 
No, me neither, right? I want to fight next to the guy that's, we're going to get him, right? God's going to get us through this. Or better yet, I want to be that guy. God's going to get us through this, right? So God's protecting the morale of his people. But even with just 10,000 guys left, there's still a problem. (laughs) Verse 4, Judges 7, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. See, God knows people's hearts. He knows they're still, no matter what, they're still going to try to take credit and glory for the win. So he whittles down the army a little bit more. All right, verse 4. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, uh, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, uh, likewise, everyone kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. I mean, talk about faith, right? Taking your army down, by 99%. Gone. That's crazy. But in Hebrews 11:32, that's what Gideon was commended for. He had faith and trusted God to do what he said he would do. Because that's what faith is. That's what Hebrews 11 says. Being sure of what we hope for, being certain of what we cannot see. Like Pastor Jason talked about last week. So Gideon could not see 300 farmers defeating tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of trained soldiers, right? But that's the point. That's what faith is. It's believing that God can do what you cannot do. That's what faith is. That's how God alone gets the glory. He wants everybody in this story to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the victory belongs to God. And they are going to win this battle. Just spoiler for you, right? But Gideon, at the end of this, for sure, he's going to know, dude, who am I? I'm just a guy. He, for sure, is going to know that God won the battle for him, right? How about the 300 guys? You're going to be like, there's only 300 of us? Again, it was not us at all. That was all God. How about the 31,700 guys who got sent back home? They're going to be like, we weren't even there. We didn't do anything. Obviously, God won the battle, right? This is what the message of salvation should always bring to our minds. And here in the book of Judges, but also throughout life, this is our takeaway number four. God does not save the way you'd expect. He uses weakness and unlikely circumstances so that he alone gets the glory. Think about in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 when he talks about the thorn in his flesh. And he says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. 
Like God and Paul and us all know that he alone, God alone is the one who saves. And when we start getting full of ourselves, we tend to want to steal some of that glory and credit. So that's why Paul says then in verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, this thorn in this flesh. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Like, Paul's response is amazing, right? He brags about being weak. Why? So that God gets all the credit. Then people will see that God alone is the strong one. See, God's teaching Gideon and Paul and us all that exact same lesson. God works through weakness. Why? So that he alone gets the credit. He alone gets the glory. And God's going to show Gideon in a crazy way exactly what this looks like. So in the next few verses, God knows that Gideon's still a little bit afraid. So he tells Gideon, hey, Gideon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down. The camp of Midian is down there in the valley. They were up on the hill. He says, hey, go down, and you're going to go up to a tent, and you're going to listen to what the enemies are saying. And so Gideon obeys. He takes his buddy with him. They go down, and they happen to pick the one tent, <laughs> the right tent, and they go up, and they're listening on the side through the tent. And right as they're there listening to it, what happens? Well, one of the soldiers had a dream. And he wakes up from that dream, and he's telling all the other, the other soldiers, the enemy soldiers in their tent, about the dream. It says, verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley who tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. <laughs> so what does Gideon do as soon as he hears this amazing news? This one tent he goes to, he hears this dream. He's like, what? What does he do? He says, yeah, let's go get him. No. He worships God. Exactly what God, how he was weaving it the whole time so that God would get the glory. Verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. It's exactly why God was orchestrating the whole thing all along to work out this way. Well, you want to finish the story? Let's finish the story. Here we go. Verse 15, and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Verse 19, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. And when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, then the, 300, or then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars and they held in their left hand the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. 
every man stood in his place around the camp, and the, all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the enemy. Did the 300, I don't want to call them soldiers, did the 300 guys kill anybody? In this battle, no, they didn't. They didn't kill anyone. Isn't that crazy? God took away any possible reason they could have had to boast about what they did. Like, imagine being, I was thinking about this this week, imagine being one of those 300 guys, and you come back from battle to your house, and your kid runs up to you. It's like, Dad, you, you, won, the, you won the battle. You did it. How many guys did you kill? Dude, you're such a good soldier, right? What, how, what was it like? And you as a dad have to say, well, I didn't kill anybody. <laughs> and your kid's like, well, what was it like holding the sword? And like, and, and are you, you're such an amazing soldier. And you're like, I had a jar. <laughs> and I yelled. And I had a trumpet. <laughs> That's it. What would you have to tell your kid? God did it all. <laughs> he did it all. He did a miracle. God always gets the glory. There's one last thing I want you to see, and it's in verse 25. And it's a little thing that I didn't notice at first, but check this out. Because after this battle, they went on and, and took, um, took down some other groups of people that were uh, around them. It says, verse 25, And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed, and Zeb they killed at the wine press of Zeb. A wine press and a rock. Do you remember those two things from earlier in the story? Do you remember where God met Gideon at the beginning of the story? A wine press, and then at a rock. The exact places that Gideon was living in fear instead of faith. This is our last takeaway. God often uses the places of our greatest weakness for his greatest glory. You may not know this about me, but I hated schoolwork growing up. <laughs> I like the social side of school, but I did not like the work side of school. I hated writing papers, so much so that my junior year of high school at Orange Glen, I went to my English teacher, Dr. Burns, and said, Dr. Burns, I do not need to write your paper that you're asking me to write because I'm just going to grow citrus and avocados the rest of my life and because that's what my family did. And so what do farmers and ranchers need to do with writing papers? Like that's not even a real thing for ranchers, right? And so Dr. Burns said, well, if you want to pass my class, you have to write the paper. <laughs> so I ended up writing something because somehow I passed her class. Well, after high school, I ended up going to Palomar because when you don't know what else you're going to do, you go to Palomar, right? So I went to Palomar, took a few classes, enrolled in one English class, even though I knew I hated English. Two weeks into the class, the teacher assigns the first paper. I dropped the class. <laughs> I don't want to do it. A few months later, I dropped out of college completely. So it's just not for me. Now, 26 years later, I'm here. I'm not a rancher. <laughs> I'm a youth pastor. <laughs> And the place of my greatest weakness is the exact place that God is using me for his glory. What I just went through is a 13-page paper with you, right? 
I would have never thought in a million years that I would be, a lot of my job is writing. Because when I'm weak, then he's strong, right? A couple questions. Where in our lives are we living in fear instead of faith? Is there an area of your life that you're operating and living in fear, making decisions because of fear instead of faith? And secondly, are there things in your life that I'm trying to take credit for instead of giving glory to God? Let's pray. God, I ask those same questions um, to my own heart. I'm not above any of this. I'm learning this just like everyone else here. And so, God, I don't want to make the same mistakes that we read about in the Old Testament. I don't want to make decisions out of fear. God, I pray that you would strengthen my faith. God, I've seen, I know what you're capable of. I know what your character is like. I can trust you. And so, God, I pray that you give me faith to step out and say, God, I don't know what the future looks like, but I'm trusting you here. And God, is there a place in my life where I'm trying to take credit for something? Because I don't deserve credit for anything. Every breath that I have, every skill that you've given me, all the time, it's not even my time, it's your time. Every money, every dollar that's in my bank account, it's all yours. Every minute is yours. I'm just managing it. And so, God, I want to manage all those things well. And so, God, if I'm taking glory and credit for something, I ask that you would point that out to me and forgive me. God, thank you for your grace that you kept having on the Israelites, that you keep having on us when we just regret doing certain things instead of repent and turn from them. God, if there are things in our lives that we are not repenting of, pray that your spirit would convict us of that because you want what's best for us to keep our eyes focused on you alone, not get sidetracked by all the horizontal things, but keep our eyes vertical on you. So thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.